We're spending so much money, and yet we are not even prepared for this pandemic. And with all due respect to Medicare for all, you have a single-payer system in Italy. It doesn't work there. Well, how's the system working here, Joe? Just curious. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Yes, I do. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Yes, a little scared. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Not too much. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast that's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Up in Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas, on KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe, even during pandemics, on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com says me. Glad you could join us here today. And what do you know, Florida's own dangerously Trumpy Republican governor has finally decided to acknowledge reality and science and the experts in both only after a few weeks uh, of, of begging and pleading Uh, He might have saved a whole bunch of his constituents' lives had he done so sooner. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Wednesday issued a statewide stay-at-home order as federal and local pressure mounted for him to abandon the county-by-county approach he had implemented, as AP describes the actions of one of the last governors in the country Not the last, but one of them uh, to finally give up the Fox News ghost that this is all some sort of a pretend hoax that will simply fade away with the warm spring weather. DeSantis told reporters that he is issuing the order after consulting with Donald Trump and White House advisors who have said that Americans need to stay home throughout April. And of course, if there's anyone you want to consult with before taking action during an unprecedented viral pandemic, it would be Donald Trump, naturally. Uh, did you know that his uncle was a scientist at MIT, Desi Doy? He keeps telling me that over yeah. and over and over again. So he's the guy. The uh, Sunshine State's confirmed cases are now approaching 7,000. Deaths have reached 86 and almost 900 are hospitalized with a university model cited this week at the White House showing an exponential growth in the coming weeks. And that model, by the way, cited by the White House, is one of the most optimistic models out there. But you know what? Whatever it takes. 
More than 30 other states have already issued such orders, including large states like California, New York, and Illinois, which all acted more than a week ago and have undoubtedly resulted in many lives being saved. As a matter of fact, from the data that I am seeing, this is especially true in California, which was an early hotspot along with Washington State, but which has had one of the flattest curves in the rate of growth in the country ever since then. Desi, are you seeing the same uh, those same charts? Oh, yeah. it's uh, Now, of course, you have to factor into that the amount of testing that is going on. But based on what the data we have now, it does appear that that shutdown, that early action by Governor Newsom here in California, has lowered and really flattened that curve a lot. It appears we have exponentially flattened that curve with the uh, early measures uh, taken out here in the Golden State, at least as of this moment. We'll see if that holds. But if so, it's very good news and a model along with Washington states that a number of other states should have and could have taken a long time ago, at least taken note of a long time ago. So kudos to Governors Newsom and Inslee in California and Washington and welcome to reality Governor DeSantis in Florida. Of course, it is not only Republican governors who appear to have a very fragile grasp on our current state of reality and science. To be frank, Wisconsin's Democratic governor, Tony Evers, as I've been pointing out since last week, seems to be out of his mind. Even though he declared a statewide stay-at-home order for the Badger State way back on March 24, thank you, Governor, he is, incredibly enough, allowing a presidential primary election, along with other statewide and municipal elections, to go forward next Tuesday, April 7th, in the middle of a pandemic. Now, to be fair, Governor Evers uh, in Wisconsin does not have the power on his own to postpone that election or to order an all-vote-by-mail election. Only the GOP-majority state legislature can do that, and they have said that they are fine with holding a primary where mostly Democrats are expected to turn out with an ongoing presidential primary on the Democratic side. They're cool putting more Democrats than Republicans at risk, I guess, of death through the spread of coronavirus, but uh, Evers could have and should have raised holy hell to force them to change that in the legislature. Or he could have done what the Republican governor did in Ohio, has had his uh, his health secretary come out and declare a state of uh, a health emergency at the polls or something. At least he could have tried, you know, but instead he seemed to be fine with holding an election this coming Tuesday. Well, he might be fine, but poll workers are certainly not fine. As of Tuesday night, more than 100 communities in Wisconsin do not have any poll workers for the April 7 presidential primary election. As a record number of voters are overwhelming clerks with absentee ballots, leading to warnings that thousands of votes may not ever be counted, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel last night. Nearly 60 percent of Wisconsin municipalities are short on poll workers, 60 percent. That, according to the Wisconsin Election Commission, they are also uh, short almost 7000 poll workers overall. Who could have foreseen it? Oh, yeah, we did. 
at least a week ago, and election officials are worried uh, even more uh, of those poll workers simply won't show up at all on April 7 because of the coronavirus pandemic that is keeping people in their homes. Because, yes, there is a stay-at-home order statewide. But, you know, go vote anyway. Hope the crowds aren't too big or the lines too long or the touchscreens and pens too germy for you, but good luck. Wisconsin Election Commissioner Mark Thompson said during an emergency meeting of the commission on Tuesday, quote, to create an illusion for the public that somehow everything is working fine, I think is just not appropriate. Well, that's not very MAGA of you there, Commissioner. Uh, This is what our, our entire politics have largely devolved into, illusions that everything is working just fine. For the last, I don't know, at least three years, brother, come on, get with the program. In Milwaukee, the shortage is pushing election officials to reduce the number of polling places. Get this, from 180 to 10 or 12. Wow. This is a scenario that uh, Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett calls irresponsible. Well, I would say so. The Wisconsin Election Commission is allowing municipalities to consolidate polling places to reduce the number of locations that they'll need to, to staff and sanitize. But that practice will result in more people flocking to each location, even as health officials are telling people to stay away from one another. (laughs) That's That's insanity. Yes, it is. It is madness. In addition to their concerns about how the election will run, state election officials are also worried about the ability of clerks to process the flood of absentee ballots that are now hitting them. Nearly one million voters have asked for absentee ballots for the April 7 uh, primary. And uh, there's also an election for the state Supreme Court and local offices. That number, one million, surpasses the total number of early ballots cast both by mail and in person in the 2016 presidential election. Again, who could have foreseen it? People would rather not go into a, a virus infected polling place in the middle of a pandemic. Commissioner Thompson argued large numbers of absentee ballots may never be counted because of slow mail service and confusion amid the pandemic. People who finally get absentee ballots in the next few days, if they get them, in many cases will not have time to get them back to clerks by Election Day, which is the latest that they can return them, apparently. So are there not drop boxes that they can use to drop them off at the polling place or county headquarters or city hall or something on election day. In March, the commission provided clerks with 1.2 million absentee ballot envelopes after they faced a severe shortage. It has since ordered more than 1 million to address a new shortage, and those will get to the places most in need Wednesday, but the rest are unlikely to arrive before the April 7 election. This according to a memo from Megan Wolf, the director of the Wisconsin Election Commission. Governor Evers told reporters on Monday that he was standing by his decision to not delay the election. Good call, Governor. Citing the need to make sure that county boards, school boards, other elected bodies do not face vacancies as they could. Again, this is not just a primary, but municipal elections as well. Uh, He said he does not believe he has the power to postpone the election, legal power, with one week Uh, Before the election, Evers, as of Tuesday, 
was encouraging state employees to fill the gap among efforts to replace older poll workers who are at a higher risk of serious health implica- uh, complications and death if they contract the virus. On March 20, so back the clock up a little bit, Evers chief counsel told election officials the governor would call up the Wisconsin National Guard to help at the polls if enough poll workers could not be found. But as of Monday of this week, a spokesman said there were no plans to deploy the guard despite the worker shortage. The uh, Wisconsin National Guard spokesman said uh, using National Guard members to serve as poll workers for the April 7 election is not currently an option under consideration. This was reported by the Journal Sentinel on Tuesday. Well, guess what? As of this morning, according to the Journal Sentinel, Governor Tony Evers has agreed to use members of the Wisconsin Army National Guard to work the polls during the April 7 election amid a massive shortage of poll workers. Governor Evers has agreed to use members of the Wisconsin Army National Guard to assist as poll workers, but it is anticipated that the assistance of the National Guard will not satisfy all of the current staffing needs. That, according to the Assistant Attorney General, uh, who wrote in a brief uh, filed in a federal lawsuit seeking to postpone the election, the National Guard is currently determining how many personnel it can make available for each county. How many personnel it can put at risk for each county as well. Yep. And by the way, uh, trained to be poll workers between now and then. I'm sure it's very simple. Evers, uh, through the uh, Democratic Attorney General Josh Call's office, did not take a position in that lawsuit, but he offered information about the state's efforts to carry out the election. He has said that he wants all voters to receive an absentee ballot to be able to mail in their vote, and he does not want to move the election. In uh, Tuesday's uh, briefing, Evers suggested ways that the federal judge in this case could make it easier to achieve a mail-in election, which uh, is apparently not legal unless the Republicans in the state legislature take action. The governor asked the judge to consider suspending the state's photo ID requirement making it easier for people who don't have a way to provide a photocopy of their identification to be able to vote absentee. Yes, because, as we told you last week, in Wisconsin, under the state's Republican photo ID restriction, voters have to figure out how to upload a copy of their ID in order to get an absentee ballot in the first place, which many older voters in particular are reportedly having problems doing. Uh, Evers also asked the judge to extend the deadline to submit and receive an absentee ballot and to suspend the state's requirement for absentee voters to have a witness sign their ballots. Oh, yeah, you have to do that in Wisconsin as well. A witness has to sign your ballot. But many voters live alone and the coronavirus outbreak has forced people to limit their interactions. So the federal judge is considering this uh, request by voter advocates to postpone the election or make other changes uh, in the coming days. Take your time, judge. No rush. That election is next Tuesday. Meanwhile, the state commission is trying to find ways to keep polling places clean. The state is providing clerks with at least two liters of sanitizer for each polling place. In addition, the state is attempting to acquire one and a half million disinfectant wipes but so far has only been able to get half that amount. The state, however, has ordered one and a half million pens that voters can keep 
so they don't have to touch pens that have been used by others. Well, let's uh, hope that all Wisconsin voters leave the polls with is a pen at this point. All of this instead of pressing the GOP legislature to pass emergency legislation to change the date of the elections in an actual emergency or to move it to all vote by mail or something with the proper time and the resources to do it without causing chaos as we now have in Wisconsin. Remember, it was an emergency session. Years ago, an emergency session of the legislature that the state's former Republican governor, Scott, what was it? Scott Walker, Walker. uh, that he called when he wanted to strip union rights from for from Wisconsin workers. They called an emergency legislative session. Now we have an actual emergency and the Democratic governor. Now that we have a Democrat in office has failed to take action to call an emergency uh, session. And what do you know? The Republican heads of the state House and uh, and Senate are just totally cool with that. Let's take a quick break here. We got a lot to get to, uh, including R.J. Eskow is going to be joining us in a bit uh, as life during pandemic. I want to say pandemonium. (laughs) Pandemic pandemonium continues here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the broadcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. You know, it's amazing that the Trump administration has not made that their theme song <laughs> at this by this point. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down nearly 1,000 points again on Wednesday as markets continued to reel from Donald Trump's stark warning on Tuesday that the U.S. could be facing hell. This could be a hell of a bad two weeks. This is going to be a very bad two and maybe three weeks, he said. This is going to be three weeks like we've never seen before. That was at the White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing on Tuesday night, as White House officials warned that the U.S. could see up to 240,000 deaths from the outbreak. But two weeks? Three weeks? Really, Mr. President? Why any of this comes as a surprise to traders that they would suddenly start uh, trading down today? Well, perhaps they were enjoying the uh, world of pure imagination that Donald Trump has been selling them. Remember, it was just a few weeks ago that Trump tweeted the coronavirus is very much under control in the USA. Stock markets starting to look very good to me. I guess there are enough suckers that believed him for a while. But uh, look, 
We are not uh, one of those uh, shows on the radio constantly warning that the end of the world is coming so that, you know, we can we can sell your survival meals or gold coins or special snake oil medicine to ward off viruses in a pandemic. We don't sell anything, as a matter of fact. We have no sponsors other than you, our listeners. So we can afford, I hope, to tell you the truth. You'll decide, but that's what we do. And if you know me and if you know this show and you know bradblog.com, I am disinclined to shout that the sky is falling. But even I have been trying to warn folks that this will be much worse than our national leadership at the White House or even in Congress or even Joe Biden has been making clear to the American people. Now, you shouldn't panic. But, you know, as I've been uh, telling people, my friends, families, neighbors, it makes perfect sense right now. Uh, do not hoard, but make sure that you got what you need. Enough food and medicine and staple supplies at this point to be able to, uh, well, I was going to say last about a month. But, Desi, you you heard from uh, some, was a Harvard economist uh, today? Yes, uh, said, Eric Feigelding, who is a Harvard global health economist, told CNBC that his estimation of this is that we should expect to see at least two more months of this, all of April and all of May, and then maybe we'll see if it peaks and starts flattening yeah. out in well, June. Well, I think that he is also being optimistic. Now, that doesn't mean you got to get enough food to last for a full two months, but you know, uh, if if suddenly the shutdowns get more draconian or something falls off a cliff with the supply chain, and it certainly could, it wouldn't hurt to have a month worth of supplies around. Remember, we got a lot of farm workers, many of them undocumented without any access to any medical care at all, who are often uh, working in close quarters to make sure that you and I get fresh food and vegetables and uh, meats. And if the virus begins to severely affect that sector suddenly, well, who knows how long that, you know, those grocery store shelves will continue to be well stocked. This is this is now common sense stuff, at least it seems to me, unless you live in a world of pure imagination. And if you pay attention, people are telling us even if things go well, we are looking at as many as 240,000 dead Americans and millions of layoffs, millions of layoffs that could easily end up outpacing the Great Depression. And now I'm finally hearing this. We've been trying to say this. Uh, if you're hearing this now for the first time, I'm sorry. I don't like to panic, folks. I really don't. But I do like to tell the truth. And I don't have any you know, special insider knowledge. I don't even have any outsider knowledge, to be frank. I just happen to read science and facts and academic reports rather than watching the misinformer in chief and his nightly uh, circus show from the White House. I've been arguing that nobody seems to be steering the ship at the federal level. Nobody talking about how bad this is likely to be when it comes to the economy in particular. And nobody talking about how we eventually get out of this mess. That as the media is obsessed with the with, you know, the current right now numbers and politics. And in some res in some respects, that's understandable. But it sure seems like people at the top, whether it's people in Congress, whether it's people in the White House, whether it's our presidential candidates ought to be talking about these things and the notion that, no, this is not going to be done by Easter, not going to be done by the end of April, not going to be done by 
the end of May. The end of May, as they're talking about. But this could go on for a very long time. Well, now the New York Times is finally beginning to discuss that a bit more. Jim Tankersley uh, reported this morning that White House economists published a study last September that warned that a pandemic disease could kill a half million Americans and devastate the economy. But that report went unheeded inside the administration. Imagine that. In late February and early March, as the coronavirus pandemic spread to, uh, from China to the rest of the world, President Trump's top economic advisors played down the threat that the virus posed to the U.S. economy and public health. The uh, acting chair of the Council of Economic Advisers, Thomas Phillipson, told reporters during a February 18 briefing, quote, I don't think corona is as big a threat as people make it out to be. That was the same day that more than a dozen American cruise ship passengers who had contracted the virus were evacuated home. Public health threats did not typically hurt the economy, however, Mr. Phillipson said. Well, the 2019 study warned otherwise, specifically urging Americans not to conflate the risks of typical flus and a major pandemic. The existence of that warning undermines administration officials' contention in recent weeks that no one could have foreseen the virus damaging the economy as it has. Who knew? The study was requested by the National Security Council. That's the White House National Security Council, according to people familiar with the uh, matter. But as we know, the White House never listens to the NSC even when they're warning that the president is breaking the law by attempting to extort a foreign uh, nation with hundreds of millions of dollars of military equipment unless the, their president announces a bogus investigation into Donald Trump's political allies. But I digress. One of the authors of this particular study, who has since left the White House, now says it would make sense for the administration to effectively shut down most economic activities for two to eight months in order to slow the virus. So now we're talking about eight months. Good. That's closer. Keep going. So, yeah, by the way, this is not going to be over at the end of April, nor by June 2nd, when more than a dozen states now currently have optimistically rescheduled their presidential primaries. So, hey, please start mailing those all vote by mailots now. Connecticut, Delaware, Indiana, Maryland, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Dakota, West Virginia, Puerto Rico, Louisiana, Kentucky and New York. There will be no safe voting at the polls by June 2nd. And all the other states better figure out how they're going to make all of this happen in all 50 states by November. But I digress again. I got to get to my guest, so I can't get into the detail of this particular story, this ignored study. But one more from The Times uh, even later today, as they are finally saying this stuff out loud for Americans. From uh, from Peter Goodman, the world is almost certainly ensnared in a devastating recession delivered by the coronavirus pandemic. Now fears are growing that the downturn could be far more punishing and long lasting than initially feared, potentially enduring into next year and even beyond. The abrupt halt of commercial activity threatens to impose economic pain so profound and enduring in every region of the world all at once that it that recovery could take years. The losses to companies, many already saturated with debt, risk triggering a financial crisis of cataclysmic proportions. That coming from The New York Times, not an op ed, by the way, but a reported story.
I'll, uh, I can't get into that either, but I will link to it tonight at bradblog.com. Yesterday, we told you that the St. Louis Fed did a back-of-the-envelope uh, uh, analysis finding that unemployment could be as high as 32% and that during the Great Depression, it was only 25%. In the Great Recession, it was just 10%. But 32% is about 47 million Americans unemployed. So how are those employer-based health care plans that many did not want to give up in exchange for Medicare for All how are those starting to look right now? Well, for now, they may have helped to make this crisis far worse than it needed to be. And on that, we turn to the Zero Hours Richard Escow. He is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, as, as some of our listeners hopefully know, on Sundays at bradblog.com, Perry Dorrell, affectionately known as P. Diddy, runs a collection of the week's best political cartoons, which are very popular at the blog these days for some reason. Uh, among the tunes in his collection uh, this past Sunday, uh, he highlighted one from Darren Bell, showing the covers of two different newspapers. One paper uh, is called Last Month's News. It has a banner headline, quote, Biden and other centrist Dems trash Medicare for all. With the quote, 150 million Americans have employer provided health insurance and love it. You can't take it from them. The other newspaper is called This Month's News, and its headline reads Millions to lose jobs during COVID 19 shutdown will be out of work for months or years. So how are those beloved employer-based health insurance plans looking now? The ones defended so strongly by the likes of Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar during the height of the Democratic presidential primaries just weeks ago. Do the millions who have already lost their jobs in this pandemic and the millions more still to come, do they love those employer-based health insurance plans? Are they still fighting against single-payer, Medicare-for-all-style health plans that cover all Americans from cradle to grave, no matter one state of employment, as proposed by Democratic presidential candidates like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? 
I'm not looking to open back up the Democratic primary with this, though I will note that it is not over with more than a dozen states still set to vote somehow between now and the time the Democratic National Convention is somehow to officially nominate their candidate, who presumably at this point will be Joe Biden. At least it would be in normal times and likely still will be. But these are anything but normal times. And we do now have millions of Americans who are out of work or will be soon, many of which were comfortably employed just weeks ago, and some of whom undoubtedly were feeling quite comfortable with their employer-based health care insurance, at least back then. But that was in the before times. As our friend Sahil Kapoor of NBC News reports this week, soaring jobless claims are poised to leave millions of Americans without health insurance coverage during the coronavirus pandemic. The emergency highlights a flaw in the U.S. system that's unique in the developed world. About half of Americans get coverage from their employers. Health care, already a top issue for voters, is about to become even more salient as many wonder what the system would look like if President Donald Trump, Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden, and Democratic underdog Bernie Sanders had their way. Sabrina Corlett, a research professor who directs Georgetown University's Center on Health Insurance Reforms, said in all three proposals, whether people are insured or uninsured, they would likely get care if they showed up at a hospital with COVID-19. The question is, how does that care get financed? In the Sanders plan, it's very clear the government picks up the tab for for all of that, almost 100 percent. In the Biden plan, for the most part, either the government or your employer would pick up the tab. You might have to pay some deductibles or cost sharing, she said. In the Trump world, it largely falls to the consumer or patient or the hospital eats the cost or tries to pass it on to employer-based plans, raising everyone's premiums. Anyway, that is not easy, of course, that last plan, particularly if you don't have an employer. But the issue, argues former health insurance executive Richard Eskow this week at the American Prospect, is arguably worse than that. As the country struggles with COVID-19, he writes in his article headlined, Health Benefit Plans Are Making the Pandemic Worse, it's important to understand how our current health insurance system may have contributed to the spread of the disease and how it could make it harder to control. Our circumstances may have been shaped in part by a decades-old study and an unfortunate accident of timing, he writes. Uh, he says that uh, unfortunate accident of timing has resulted in a plot twist worthy of H.G. Wells. Joining us now is not H.G. Wells, but Richard R.J. Eskow to explain this disturbing plot twist, uh, what it all could mean for millions of Americans, how it came to be, and even what effect, if any, it might have on the still not yet official Democratic Party presidential nomination. Uh, Richard Eskow is a longtime freelance writer and columnist, policy analyst and host and managing editor of the weekly radio and TV program The Zero Hour. He is also a former, some might say reformed, health insurance executive who is now a senior fellow for health and economic justice with Social Security Works. And by way of transparency here, he served as a senior writer and editor for the Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign, if not the 2020 campaign. Richard Escow, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. 
good to be back, even though I now know I'm your second choice of guest after H.G. Wells. Yeah, I couldn't get H.G. Wells, so we're going to have to settle for you, my friend. Right. Uh, Are you currently under uh, stay-at-home orders in your particular state, which I'm not even sure which one it is at this time? Right now I live just outside Washington, D.C., in Mm -hmm. Maryland. We are at stay-at-home orders. I have a little, uh, you know health challenge of my own, so I've been at under stay-at-home uh, orders for longer than most people. Mm. Uh, I, I'm like the guy at the beginning of the zombie movie who's <laughs> in a coma for 10 days and then 28 days and then comes out and, and everybody's gone. That's basically been my situation. So yes, I am under uh, strict stay-at-home orders myself, as are millions and millions of people, mm-hmm. and as we may remain for some time. And, uh, yeah, for some time might be an understatement, as we've been talking about on this show uh, in recent days. So I know you're, you're, you're dealing with some health issues. Uh, speak as softly as you need. We'll crank things up on this end. Uh, but last time we spoke, Richard, even though it wasn't all that long ago, I think it was late February, as I recall, it, it was, of course, the before times, so it does seem forever ago. Uh, at that time, uh, we were talking about the Culinary Union in Nevada, which had opposed right. Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All health care proposal at the time uh, because of the top-notch health care plans that the, uh, that particular union had earned over many years, had fought for for its members. Uh, and, but you argued that uh, Medicare for All would actually have been better even for them. Well, now... Sanders ended up winning by a landslide in Nevada anyway, but he then went on to get crushed by Joe Biden in in most of the preceding states to vote in the primary before the uh, coronavirus pandemic postponed about a dozen state primaries that have still yet to be held. I will circle back to that in a minute, but I first want to discuss the important points that you made in your piece at the American Prospect about how our employer-based health care system may have actually made the spread of the virus worse. Let's hit the two main points you've got here. Uh, one, first, you argue an accident of timing may have helped uh, the early spread of the virus in the U.S., which might have been better contained had it struck last autumn instead of after the first of this year. How so, and and how has that changed the game? Well, uh, first of all, you know, we have a uniquely weird uh, health insurance system among developed countries because it relies so much on employers, Mm -hmm. and there's a, a lot of culture and research and so on that's gone into building on that historical accident, but we have something we call health benefit plans, uh, unique to each employer, based along certain, and the Affordable Care Act, based along certain lines, and uh, one of them uh, is out-of-pocket costs, which are going up far faster than inflation for working people, and the two primary components of that are co-payments, you mm-hmm. know, that what you have to shell out out-of-pocket when you see a provider and deductibles, which is the amount you have to meet mm-hmm. uh, before you even get any coverage. And that's the amount that's uh, initially hurting us the most with uh, the coronavirus, with, uh, the novel coronavirus, which is, uh, first of all, it needs to be understood that, in my, at least in my opinion, the existence of deductibles uh, means that every, virtually every working American is uninsured. You have 70%, according to polls, mm-hmm. of uh, Americans saying they don't have $1,000 on hand 
uh, they'd have to borrow or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, for an emergency, and you have deductibles on average that are higher than that. So, in other words, nobody is adequately insured for a medical problem that comes up. Most people don't meet their deductibles in the first quarter of the year. Mm -hmm. The pandemic struck in the first quarter of the year. So, as a result, you have people being told you should get checked out if you have symptoms A, B, C, or D, mm-hmm. but they literally have to pay 100% out of pocket at this point. Maybe they'll get reimbursed someday, but remember, they don't have the cash on hand. So uh, what we have is a situation where people almost certainly are not getting checked out as quickly as they should be, which is promoting the spread of the disease and worsening the progression of the disease for people who have it. Mm -hmm. And then when they do go, uh, there is absolutely no guarantee. We're seeing story after story of people being hit with all sorts of costs, even if they have the coronavirus for transportation, if they have to take an ambulance, Mm -hmm. or for, uh, for surprise billing, if they're in the hospital. So we have a situation where all the fractures in our uh, in our employer-driven and largely Affordable Care Act-driven system mm-hmm. are are being exposed and widening as a result of this pandemic. It's making people worse off financially during the worst, what probably will be the fir- worst financial crisis in our history, certainly in 100 years, the way things are going. It's making people far worse off financially, and it's making their health worse, and it's making our collective health mm-hmm. worse. So it's a disaster. So just to underscore and sort of restate, uh, because I think it's a really important point, most Americans, uh, it's found, do not have, uh, you know, $1,000 or $500. I think I saw in one study yesterday, you know, if they needed it for emergency expenses, they don't have that cash necessarily sitting around. Well, if they felt bad this year, let's say in January or February, and had a fever, uh, trouble breathing, something that they feared they might have uh, uh, the coronavirus, they might be disinclined to go in because they have a plan, one of these fantastic employer-based plans perhaps, that says, okay, the first $1,200 or first $1,400, whatever it is, got to come from you in this deductible. So you would avoid, if you only had a thousand bucks, you might want to avoid going into the hospital to get checked out at all if it meant you're going to find out you got coronavirus and uh, you're going to have to part with at least the first $1,400 or so out of savings that you do not have. Is that essentially uh, the argument that you're making? And that had it come in uh, the end of last year, when some of those folks may have already uh, paid out their deductible, they might have been more inclined to go in early and get checked out. Yes, and they'd still there would still be people who can't do it because of the co-payments, mm-hmm. which continue throughout the year. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there would still be a certain percentage of people. But right now, by having it hit early in the year, it's not even a matter of what people want. A lot of people don't have the cash. So, uh, and that's just because the 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 deductibles essentially reset at the beginning of each year for no particular reason. That's just when they reset and everything starts over when it comes to counting deductibles. Am I right about that? Yeah, for most plans. I mean, some plans have different calendar years, Mm -hmm. but by and large, it begins in the beginning of the year. So we had this bad timing, and uh, which made uh, a bad system. Mm -hmm. I, I would argue it's a bad system. 
worse for everybody. And uh, we're all going to be sicker as a result, whether we're on that kind of a plan or not. And that is just swell. Uh, the second point of, uh, of blame, if you will, that you cite for the uh, really unfortunate and arguably unnecessary spread in, in many cases is, is based on sort of a, an old study by the RAND Corporation years ago, back in the 1980s, that resulted in the way that many of our health insurance policies are now essentially both private and public I think uh, now seem to be based um, so please explain <laughs> well uh, Iran corporation most people know them for their nuclear war work and that kind of thing mm-hmm. <clears throat> but they did a very extensive study back in the 1970s this all this cost sharing was not as common and certainly not as expensive as it is now. So, you know, without getting bogged down too much in the weeds, it was a lot of people being studied over an extended period of time. There are certain criticisms of this study, Mm -hmm. uh, but there are also certain major misinterpretations of the study. The study basically said that when people have to share in the cost of their health care, they use less of care that they need and less of care that they might not need. Mm -hmm. Now, that's uh, without defending or attacking, that was their conclusion, which quickly became as a kind of uh, healthcare folklore mm-hmm. for wonks, policy wonks in government, and for people like me who used to do this kind of work in the private sector, although I was never a wholehearted follower of it. But it, it, it quickly created this culture that said, hey, you know what, we can pass a lot of the costs of medical care onto primarily working people in employer health plans, and they won't get that much sicker unless they're really poor, And uh, which is one thing the study did find. And we're not talking about really poor people here. We're talking about people with jobs. Mm-hmm. So we can start shifting costs to the employees. They'll, they'll use less care between the costs we pass to them and the less care they're using. We, the insurance company, or we, the employer, will save money, but they won't be that much sicker, so everybody will be happy. Well, there was a, there was, that was an overly simplistic view mm-hmm. of the study, which in certain ways was, you know, had limits of its own. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it became a kind of folklore, uh, and so we have this world of health benefits that is designed to model, and I, I'm ashamed to say I used to be extremely good at it, mm. modeling, uh, you know, what it would cost and how people's consumption of health care would change if you did A, B, C, mm-hmm. D, or E. And, um, you know, math can be fun if you don't think about the human implications of it. <laughs> but, and and um, I'm trying to make amends for that now, but, you, you know, so what you have is... Um, is a situation where now for 30, 40 years, we've been passing costs on to employees in different ways. We've been uh, forbidding them from you know, accessing certain drugs. We've been uh, limiting different types of plans. We've mm-hmm. been offering them a confusing array of choices. We've been uh, um, uh, you know, doing all sorts of things, uh, the end result of which is that people are paying ca- enormous amounts for their health care out of pocket, even if they have, quote-unquote, good insurance. One example, Milliman uh, Actuarial Firm does a, hardly, you know, a hotbed of socialism, does, uh, uh, does a report every year called the Milliman Index, very good report, out-of-pocket costs for a family of four with, quote-unquote, 
good employer insurance for all forms of health care, uh, $18,000, approaching $20,000 a year. Now, that's including the fact that the employer pays part of their premium, but their share of the premium plus co-pays, plus deductibles, plus other forms of health care that aren't covered by today's health insurance, like vision, like mm-hmm. dental, like hearing, uh, it, on average, and of course this includes families with sick, very sick people in them, this comes to close to $20,000 a year. And, and you have a policy world where, mm-hmm. you know, health, uh, centrist health care economists say families should be spending 10% of their income on premiums. So you're telling a family of four that uh, makes $75,000 a year to spend $7,500 a year on premiums, potentially another 12000 on average for other health care costs. Mm-hmm. And then I hear politicians saying people, quote-unquote, love their employer insurance. <laughs> now comes a pandemic, and here we are. And here we are, after uh, decades of this notion that, uh, frankly, Republicans and Democrats alike, uh, you know, sort of describe that as shared responsibility, skin in the game. If you have to go in there, you're you're less likely to go into the doctor and bother those busy medical professionals if you're going to have to pay ten, fifteen, twenty-five dollars, fifty-dollar copay, uh, you know, just to be seen, or the first uh, thousand or two in a deductible. It was essentially, as I understand it, and as I read your piece, uh, Richard Escow at uh, American Prospect, essentially set up to say to to keep people from getting health care, to discourage health care by structuring these plans this way. And yes, as you say, uh, now here we are. Now, uh, I want to ask you, I want to get into the politics of this very quickly, but has the $2.2 trillion stimulus corporate bailout giveaway package that was signed last week. Uh, has this made uh, this situation any better, at least in as much as it, 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 when it comes to, you know, people being feeling free to go into the doctor if they feel like they might have this coronavirus? Well, I guess I would turn the question back to you, Brad. What in this bill would uh, would make people fee- feel free to do that? We have millions upon millions of Americans losing their jobs. They, mm-hmm. Many of them have no financial security whatsoever. Uh, they uh, are facing a future potentially without health insurance. They uh, are getting, some of them, an increasingly small number, as we learn more and more, are getting $1,200. Uh, the average COBRA, that's employee continuation of benefits mm-hmm. is, uh, I was running the numbers before the call, probably fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500 a month for mm-hmm. uh, the average employee. You give somebody $1,200 to pay rent, food, clothing, uh, transportation, and a $1,400 uh, insurance bill when they haven't even met their deductible yet. I, I don't really see uh, anything working people in that. And let me underscore, there is, uh, for those folks who have lost their jobs or may soon lose their jobs, there is, as I understand it, a uh, sort of a 60-day window when you can go to the uh, uh, the healthcare exchanges under the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare and actually uh, sign up for a plan there and hopefully uh, still get some sort of uh, monthly subsidy, government subsidy, to help uh, radically lower those costs. In many cases, if you happen to have, if you happen to ha- fall into a, a, a certain uh, place where you make the right amount of money 
to qualify uh, for those subsidies. Uh, So there is right. And and just to add, just to interrupt you for a second, Brad, if I may, uh, two things. One, I'm glad you brought that up because that is an important point. But number two, the the way uh, the exchanges are complex to work. And the calculations of whether you qualify for those subsidies or not are complicated. They're based on past income. If you've just lost a job, you know, it's not going to be simple to sign up for these exchanges uh, for the people who are losing their jobs. Mm -hmm. And for gig workers and so on who may not have, who probably didn't have coverage at all, Mm -hmm. and maybe they were trying to get by, who knows, uh, they're going to be out in the cold. So uh, I am glad you brought it up, but it's a very, very uh, leaky safety net. It is. Leaky is a nice way to put it, because uh, you may qualify, you may not. You you may be able to afford it, you may not. Uh, Which brings us to Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Uh, In their last debate, and this was, again, incredibly, it was only about two and a half weeks ago, But it seems like forever ago, uh, it was uh, just as things were really getting uh, beginning to get really bad. Uh, they had it out over uh, over the COVID-19 crisis with Sanders arguing that Medicare for all would would have made a, a, a difference had we all had that. And Joe Biden citing the epidemic that was at the time the worst in the world in Italy uh, before it subsequently well, before the U.S. subsequently became the worst in the world here. Uh, but Biden was pointing out that Italy already has the equivalent of Medicare for all and uh, that argued that it didn't appear to help them over there. Here is a bit of that exchange, and then I'll get your thoughts on this, Richard. We are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. We're spending so much money, and yet we are not even prepared for this pandemic. How come we don't have enough doctors? How come hospitals in rural areas are shutting down? So the word has got to go out, and I certainly would do this as president. You don't worry. People of America do not worry about the cost of prescription drugs. Do not worry about the cost of the health care that you're going to get, because we are a nation, a civilized, democratic society. Everybody, rich and poor, middle class, will get the care they need. The drug companies will not rip us off. And with all due respect to Medicare for all, you have a single-payer system in Italy. It doesn't work there. It has nothing to do with Medicare for all. That would not solve the problem at all. We can take care of that right now by making sure that no one has to pay for treatment, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for whatever drugs are needed, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for hospitalization because of the crisis, period. That is a national emergency, and that's how it's handled. It is not working in Italy right now, and they have a single-payer system. So uh, there's Joe Biden saying that Italy's outbreak proves that a single-payer system would have made no difference at all. Uh, Richard Eskow, I've I've got just another minute or two here, and i got a couple of points I want to ask you about, but your response to, to that exchange. One epidemiological illiteracy on Joe's part, as much as... You know, likable as he is, Mm -hmm. uh, Italy also has the second oldest population of any nation on Earth, Mm -hmm. which is the real story of Italy's illness and the generations mingle, which which amplified the transmission of the disease. If they did not have single payer, it would be a killing zone right now. It would be ten times worse, number one. Number two, interesting to note that at least when it comes to the pandemic, uh, Joe's a socialist as far as uh, the coronavirus is concerned, (laughs) which should be, which is good, and should be uh, a signal to him and others that maybe that's the way to go to guarantee public health 
for everyone. He's a selective socialist, like so many of them. And the notion that uh, it would have been 10 times worse in Italy, well, we may see that because it could be 10 times worse here in the U.S. We certainly seem to be on that particular uh, trajectory. I've been uh, arguing, uh, Richard, that this uh, crisis is far worse than most folks, uh, certainly our national leaders at the White House, but even Joe Biden have been making clear to folks as far as its effect on the economy and what is likely to be staggering unemployment rates that frankly could blow away what we saw in in the Great Depression. Is that your read? Am I overblowing it? Uh, is is the, the truth closer to the sort of, well, it'll be bad, but we'll be fine uh, sort of line that we're getting from the White House and, yes, even from Joe Biden? We don't know, of course, what's going to happen. There are a lot of uh, unknown unknowns, but there is certainly the potential for this to be worse than the Great Depression, and we need to be planning for the worst-case scenario, not crossing our fingers. It's like driving down the highway blind, you know, closing your eyes. Uh, it's better to keep your eyes open and prepare for the worst than to and to have it not happen than to be unprepared and have it happen. So we should be taking every precaution now for a depression that would outpace the Great Depression. I think uh, Sanders is now uh, staying in the race because a bunch of uh, of those unknown unknowns, including the possibility that Biden could seriously stumble between now and whenever the nominating convention is somehow held. Uh, is that your read on, on what he's doing right now and uh, by staying in? And do you see any actual chance that something like that might occur to shake up this whole mess uh, before all is said and done? Well, I haven't talked to him lately, but my sense of him is that, number one, he believes in the policies, he believes in a movement for a better country, and the race comes third. So I think, I would imagine that what he's thinking is, number one, the more clout he has going into the convention, the more uh, progressive and visionary uh, the platform can be, which is better, frankly, for defeating Trump and the Republicans. Uh, I think he also wants to build a movement and sees it as a building movement, a move rather a movement building exercise. And uh, yes, we don't know what the future has to hold in terms of Joe or Bernie or anybody else. So I think he also uh, wants to have a seat at the table, not only for himself, but for the millions of people he represents. And uh, I respect him for that. And I, I understand that. Richard R.J. Escow is a longtime political columnist, a former uh, a health insurance executive, now host and managing editor of the weekly radio and TV program, The Zero Hour, which you can find at thisisthezerohour.com. And this actually may be the zero hour. Uh, you can also find him on the Twitters at RJ Eskow. Uh, Richard, really appreciate you joining us today. Hope you get well soon because I may have to lean on you more and more uh, throughout this crisis to help me uh, make sense of whatever the hell is going on, my friend. Anytime. Thank you. you. Know that. Thank you, brother. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Share it with your friends and family. That service made possible by those of you who help us stay on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you for that, especially now. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. See you there until we see you here tomorrow. God willing, I'm Brad Friedman. 
Good luck, world. <laughs>